Amen. Good singing. You may be seated. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Psalm 127. We will be preaching on what is a child. We've had a lot of babies in the church, so it seems to make sense we should preach on this. We started with what is a pastor back in April, then we looked at what is a woman uh, in, on Mother's Day. On Memorial Day, we looked at what is a soldier, then we looked on Father's Day at what is a man. And so on 4th of July Sunday, or next Sunday, July 2nd, we're looking at what is a nation. And I figured instead of jumping back into Joseph and jumping out, we would say what is a child. Plus, all of you are just ooing and aahing over that pretty little baby up there. And some of you are thinking, why did you make it pink? Right? We always got to have discord. Psalm 127 is our text for this morning. I thought the music this morning was just wonderful. Your singing was great. Uh, I enjoyed this special. I noted in the early service, little baby girl Kirchner is blessed. She gets to hear mama and daddy sing so well and play the music so well. My poor kids had to listen to me sing. At least their mom sings well. She won't sing in public, but she sings well. Uh, they had to listen to us sing uh, or me sing, and it's, it's a sad state for those boys, I'm sure. I also wanted to say something from last Sunday. Um, I appreciate Zach singing happy birthday to me and leading you all. But I do need to say, I had about 10 of you say to me this week, Pastor, you were really upset we were singing to you. I wasn't upset. I was surprised. I hate anything in church that draws attention away from that, but I appreciate it. It was very kind. Plus, I'm getting older. I don't want to be reminded of it publicly. But I got home, and the first person was Jessica. She said, your face was giving away that you weren't too happy. And I said, I'll have to work on my face. <laughs> so I do appreciate, it was very kind of each of you. <laughs> but I had to at least say that before we got too deep into the preaching this morning. Psalm 127 is where we are. We'll read all five verses, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into the preaching. The Bible says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. We're going to talk about that just in briefing before we keep reading this morning. Do you know what that is saying? It's exactly the song we sang. It's the hymn we sang. You staying up worrying about life accomplishes nothing. He finishes by saying this, For so he giveth his beloved Sleep. Whatever happens in your life, whatever God brings into your life, whatever uh, transpires in your life, whatever trials you go through, whatever success you have, staying up and worrying about it all doesn't change a single thing in it. And this does apply, by the way, to what the next verse is. This psalm is not written in two parts to be kept separate. It's all one psalm. It's a psalm of degrees that they would sing on the way up on the high and holy day to worship God. And they would sing this amidst all the other psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. But this is what he says next. After telling us that God's in control, he says, Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of thy youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Father, help us, I pray, this morning as we come to this passage of Scripture. Oh, may it illuminate our thinking. We live in a present day and age where children run home. And that's not how you designed it. 
Oh, God, give us moms and dads who are loving and compassionate, but who in that love and compassion lead their homes, not in perfection, but in the pursuit of a holy God, teaching their children the things that are necessary. For we live in dark days. The solution to the problems of our country and our culture are not going to be found in a politician. They're not even going to be found in a preacher. They're going to be found from home to home that commits themselves to living by and according to the Word of God. Help us to understand that truth as we understand these truths this morning. Bless us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember almost 30 years ago in my freshman year of college reading The Lord of the Flies. Who's read The Lord of the Flies? Eight of you. Way to go. Congratulations. The rest of you, have you heard of Lord of the Flies by William Golding, written in 1954? Raise your hand. If you haven't heard of it, you can enjoy the fact that you have no idea what the introduction is about this morning. Simply to say, in Lord of the Flies, William Golding writes of a little plane filled with children that crash lands, leaving a war zone on a deserted island. No adults, just the kids running the place. There's two camps that end up developing. Uh, One camp is led by Ralph, who embodies uh, the idea of morality and rules and acts peacefully towards others with the common good of the group in mind. And that is countered by Jack, the protagonist. Jack is the embodiment of the instinct to gratify one's immediate desires, to act violently to obtain supremacy over others, and ultimately enforcing his will and their will upon others. And I can't help but think that's who we've become in this country. We are being led by a lot of Jacks, and we've forgotten the Ralphs, if you will. We live in an age where kids are told to go with every instinct that they have, do what feels right to them, and satisfy their immediate desires, even if it means forcing their will upon everyone else, including their parents. The novel, by the way, if you're deciding to go home and read it, is a difficult read. Let's just say poor Simon, who is betwixt and between the two groups, finds a butchered pig's head on the beach done to uh, it by the savage uh, group of the tribes, and he himself loses his life. It's not a pretty book to read, but it is very pictorial of the day in which we live. Savagery abounds. The innocent children in chapter 3 are seen in the peaceful rule of law and order, swimming in carelessly and carefree in a lagoon. But by the time you come to chapter number 12, they become bloodthirsty savages. Why? Because they just follow their instinct and their passions. Golding describes, in fact, the progressive, in progressive detail how this comes naturally from the increasing openness of the young people to their innate evil and savagery. And I would say that's what we've done in our culture today. I would argue that's due to Adam's sin nature from the garden. But nonetheless, it is present in our country and in our culture. Sadly, in many Christian homes, the children are the ones setting the agenda, setting the tone. Even here in modern America, a nation that was founded upon godly principles, 
We seem to think now that kids who believe in Santa Claus should be able to liberate themselves uh, from their parents' wisdom and practical advice and even go to the point of mutilating themselves beyond repair. That's the culture that we find ourselves in, friend. There's two things that I think I should set forward before we get to the notes this morning. First... It is high time that we awake in America to the fact that children are not adults. And some of you parents today are going to have to buckle up and change the way in which you are acting towards your children. The second thing that I think we must note at the beginning is this. Adults must stop acting like children. We sometimes have fallen to the trap of letting the nuts run the nut house. And while we laugh at that, it's the reality. This morning I want to preach a message about what a child is according to God's word. And then close by making an appeal, not an application. Most messages when I finish, I try to make an application so that you can go home and consider it. This morning, it's going to be a direct appeal. If you want to cheat and cut to the end, you can, savagely, and read it on your notes. The appeal is written for you because I want you to take it home. But let's begin in our notes this morning where the psalmist begins in Psalm 127. And that is this. The first thing that a child is, is a child to your life, to your home, is a treasure. It's a treasure of immense immeasurable value. The psalmist tells us here that a house is built by the Lord. He tells us here in verse 1, a city is held by the Lord. He tells us in verse 2 that your rest is had in the Lord. But in verses 3, 4, and 5, he tells us that children are an heritage of the Lord. You know, the word heritage is different than inheritance. Heritage, as I put in your notes there, is our identity, our belonging, our connection both to the past and the hope we have for a future. What heritage is your home giving? What have you been given from your parents? What are you as parents giving to your children? And what do you hope your children pass along to theirs? Is it just money and possessions? Oh, friends, that's just an inheritance. What God says here is there is an heritage that is ours. And that heritage, by the way, as beings, is that we can reproduce. We can bring forth life, just as God, the life giver, gave life in the garden. Whenever God's blessing visits a marriage with a child, it is the heritage of God's giving of life in the beginning. Children are first in a treasure, letter A, from God. Lo, Children are an heritage of the Lord, the Bible reads. God told the first woman that that bearing children would be done in sorrow. But the point is, there would be children born to that home. God knew that life, when life began. He knows today when life begins. It begins when the egg is fertilized in the woman. Researchers from Northwestern University confirmed by the NIH have found that there is a spark of life when the egg becomes what is called a zygote. At fertilization, the researchers have found, a massive release of zinc appears to set the fertilized egg cell on the path to dividing and growing into what is called an embryo or zygote. The zygote stage is brief and is followed by what scientists refer to as cleavage or clinging to. 
Stop and think about that word for a second. That scientists use. When Adam in the garden said that woman would leave her father and mother and cleave to her husband, he knew a lot more about what was going on than we sometimes give him credit for. That literally in the process of those two coming together and the bearing of children or the reproducing of life, there would be a cleavage of cells. Those two becoming one would then as one cell begin to multiply and multiply and multiply until you have a child that is born from the womb. Oh, it is a child the moment that zinc spark flies. Literally, the man and the woman's cells cleave to each other. Adam knew a lot more about his anatomy than we do. God tells us that life begins at that spark. When the zinc flashes, there is life. God told the prophet Jeremiah this in Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. He knows everyone that will take and live and come forth from the womb. Take your Bibles and turn over to Psalm 139. Just a couple pages over in your Bible or a couple swipes if you're using your iPad or phone. Psalm 139. It's a psalm of David talking about where can he go from the presence of Almighty God. And the answer he comes to is nowhere. You can't go to the highest of heavens and run from him. You can't go to the lowest parts of the earth and run from him. Especially this week, it's kind of hard to say this. You can't go to the depths of the sea and run from him. That's what David concludes in the first 12 verses. But here's what he says beginning in verse number 13. And I find it very telling. For this is when life begins at conception. That very moment that that flash begins. Here's what David writes. For thou hast possessed my reins. That means my inner being. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance. You know what he means when he says substance there? He literally is talking about the very atoms, the material of his being, the very smallest of the single cell that begins to reproduce. He said, my substance was not hid from thee. When I was made in secret, the secret here is not in some shadowy Uh, room or in some dark alley the secret here is in the womb where no one can see he said when i was made in that secret you knew me and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of earth the word earth here is the same word that is used in genesis it is god's creation of substance or matter in the lowest part of my matter or material being you know everything about me how do we know this is true if you keep reading he says this thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect not completely formed you know what the godless world calls that a fetus Do you know what we call that? A child. And in thy book are all my members, fingers, toes, eyes, and nose, were written, which in continuance were fashioned. In other words, they kept being built and being built. I remember when our boys were in Jessica's belly, as the process of that went along, when they started kicking, it got real. You thought there was little uh, aliens trying to break out of there, and you're like, what is going on? Right? And you'd talk to them, and you felt like sometimes they would talk back. And it just continued into their birth. That was a free joke. He goes on and says, when as yet there was 
None of them. He said, look, you knew me when there weren't even any little members. It is amazing to see the heartbeat in that tiny little embryo in the mother's womb. Oh, what power from the psalmist himself. But friends, that's not even the most compelling story of childhood, personhood in the womb. There's a wonderful story in the New Testament to show us personhood of the unborn child. Mary, with baby Jesus still growing in her womb, goes to visit Elizabeth, who is carrying John the Baptist in her womb. As Mary and Jesus enter the room where Elizabeth and John the Baptist are, we read this beginning in Luke 1 and verse 41, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation, the hello of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. John the Baptist jumped, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation, thy howdy duty, sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told from her from the Lord. In other words, what God's told you is true. The Holy Ghost has revealed that to me. Here's the point. John the Baptist leaps, meaning he was consciously acting within the womb, his actions being inspired by the Holy Spirit's filling. The mother, Elizabeth, blurts out the message of God. Oh, I got to tell you something. That's what she says here. You find then the symbiotic relationship in this pregnancy of two distinct actions assigned to two distinct people. Aborting a baby then is murdering a child. God gives life in the womb of the mother at the moment of conception through the process of male and female physical bonding. And I'm using that phrase because there's still some young ears in here. Who are we then to take that life? We don't need to listen to the butchering rebels of this world. We need to stand firm on the fact that a child is a child the moment it is conceived in the mother's womb. I often want to ask the pro-choice group, does the baby get a choice? Well, you just don't understand my circumstances. And I'm not saying that mockingly. I don't. There are some horrendous, there are some horrible circumstances. But is that that baby's fault? If you were to ask the mother, do you want this inconvenience, she would say no. If you were to ask that baby, do you want to die, it would say no. Which one is more important? That doesn't mean that we as a culture should not then punish those that do heinous acts to a woman to bring about a pregnancy. But I'm simply saying it doesn't make it right to end or murder the life of a child. Because God says it begins at the moment of conception. The truth from the word of God. That's what a child is. Children are first a treasure from God, but let her be, they are also a treasure as a gift from God. He says at the end of verse 1, they are, the fruit of the womb is His, God's reward. It's God's gift to you. All that God is, is good. We know that. We believe that from the Word of God. All that God gives to us is for our good. We read that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Thus it is easy to understand that God giving a child to a home, however that home is constructed and whatever that home looks like, it is good for that home. That's what this verse tells us. It doesn't feel like it's good sometimes. It is. Children are not a problem. Children are not a nuisance to your career. 
They are not a trouble, nor are they burdensome. Now, that is not to say that there's not trouble along the way and burdens along the way, but they themselves are not troublesome, nor are they burdensome. Think of the mistreatment of children in our world and the abuse of God's very heritage when parents look at their children as problems to them as opposed to gifts to them. Would you look at your salvation that way? The answer is, of course you wouldn't. But salvation is your reward for putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Speaking of children being a gift from God and a reward from Him, This kind of changes how parents should be thinking. There's far too many parents that miss this truth. Your kids are not your kids. Now, I don't want to sound like our president, right? That doesn't mean they're our kids. What I mean, they're they're his kids. Stop trying to make your kids into your image and begin to try to shape them into Christ's image. It's your objective. Well, I want Johnny to do this. I hope Susie grows up to become a... How about you say, boy, if if nothing else, I want them to love Jesus Christ as much as I do. Now, some of us right there go, I don't really love them that much. Well, maybe then you should say this, if you really are being honest this morning. I want them to love Jesus more than I do. If your children are a gift for you to use for God's glory, then you're going to teach them right from wrong. And you're going to allow them to grow into their own decision makers under the guidance and principles of the word of God. A child is a treasure from God as his gift to us. But secondly, a child is also a testimony. We keep reading there in Psalm 127 and we find out that there is a revelation of who this man is. This psalm, as I noted in the beginning in the reading, is a psalm that is sung on the way up to the temple for worship on the high and holy day. It would be sung with all of the others from 120 to 134. And we find then that it speaks to testimony. Testimony was very important then. What your kids were like was very obvious if you as a family were walking up and the singers were singing and you were joining in talking about the great faithfulness of God and your kids are going, yeah, you don't believe that. What do you think about that, Dad? Oh, I know how you act when everybody's not looking. When it's not this day. Our kids are a testimony of what we really believe. If you're singing praise to God about about your kids on the way to worship God, you better not then be lying to them in the way you live. That's why God placed this song of degrees right here in the middle, literally smack dab in the middle from 120 to 134. I was reading a book recently, a a pastor's message on children from years gone by, and he put the quote as unknown. I put it in your notes. I don't know who made the quote, but man, it is a golden quote. I wish I had known, and I wish it was me. Here's what I put in your notes. All children alarm their parents. If only because you are forever expecting to encounter yourself. Man, that's really good. I cannot tell you how many times I look at my three boys. Jessica gets off the hook. She's a girl. She looks at the boys and just sees Kyle. And I look at my boys sometimes and I'm smiling from ear to ear because I'm like, oh, man, that was me when I was young. The funniest part is to watch sometimes my parents watch my boys and smile beyond their ears because they go, that is little Kyle. And I pray hard for my kids because little Kyle wasn't a great kid. 
I put in my notes, your kids are not merely a reflection of you, they are a revelation of you. We find the testimony in the adjective used of this mighty man. They use the word mighty. Oh, that this would be spiritually true of each father in our church family. The mighty man was known through the witness of his archery, his shooting. May the Christian man be known through the spiritual discipline and the might and strength he uses in raising his child or children for the cause of Christ. Children, by the way, testify letter A of our principles. What do we actually believe in principle? You know, there's some parents out there that have some really crazy ideas about raising their kids. Spend like five seconds on social media or actual media, and you will see there are some crazy views of raising kids. There's some men out there who are husbands that have very wrong views of women. We preached on that last Sunday. There are some women out there that have some very wrong views of men. We talked about that on Mother's Day. Some people in the world have wrong views of how this world began and what the purpose of living in this world is. The point is, there's wrong views everywhere, but it is your job to teach your kids what is right. The principles that God says, these are true, walk in them. It is therefore even more imperative that Christian parents actually parent according to biblical principles. Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6 are the two things in letter A and letter B that we'll talk about. In Deuteronomy 6, we find the principles in teaching our kids the right things of God. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye may do them in the land where ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son, and notice thy son's son. So here's God speaking to Moses. Moses is translating and transferring it to the fathers of the tribes there. They are to listen to it. And their little children, their little sons are right there. And God is saying through Moses to them, hey, you guys get it, but I want your sons to get it. But not only do I want your sons to get it, I want your sons' sons to get it. So you little kids better be taught the right principles about who I am. That's a good testimony. By the way, did they have a successful testimony? That first generation was as rotten as a day is long in Israel. In fact, this group that received this message did not go in to possess the land per se. It was the second generation that went in to possess the land. In chapter 6 and verse 4, we come to that Shema, but beyond that, we see the teaching. Last week on Father's Day, I mentioned that I would take a little bit more time to talk about this this morning. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words, these principles, these precepts that I'm giving to you, which I command thee this day, shall be where? In thine heart. Dads, moms, if you don't know the Bible in your heart, good luck teaching them to your kid. Well, that's why I bring him to church. Kyle, that is your job. May I say to you, my job actually as a pastor is to encourage the fathers and the mothers to live righteously so that you will go home and teach your kids the right principles. Amen. I mean, we have teachers in Sunday school classes. We have all of those, and, I, and we want to equip the believer as best we can. But my main objective is to teach the generation that is bringing up the next generation. 
He then goes on and says this, And thou shalt teach them diligently or consistently, regularly and routinely unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, that is, the going out and upon thy gates, that is, coming back in. In other words, everywhere you go, your life should be lived by the principles found in the word of God. Do you? Well, I mean, I don't know all of them. I heard there's like something like 700 commands. Well, listen, just learn 10 of them and you'll be in good shape. I would ask you, but I might embarrass myself because I didn't write it in the notes. Can you name all 10 commandments? I know the brother Mike can. A couple months ago, he preached on it. Can you name them just off the top of your head? And you say, well, it's not fair. Yeah, life isn't fair. Can you name them? And the answer is, how can we teach them to our kids if we don't even believe them or live them or know them ourselves? God's commands that he speaks of in this passage, his statutes and his judgments are the principal things that we should be teaching our kids. His commands are the, un, are the binding, unflinching truths of the universe. Once a king gave a command, it didn't change. Nor when God gives a command does it change. Those are not arguable. They're not situational. They're absolute. When we come to his statutes, they're going to be used in governing our lives in differing ways. It doesn't mean we have different views of them, but there might be different applications of a statute in certain times. The third phrase is judgments. The word judgments is the discernments of God on a matter. The book of Proverbs is literally an entire book about the judgments of God. Hey, this is a bad idea. This is a good idea. And over and again, you would see this is a bad idea. This is a good idea. Those are his judgments. This is what you should teach your kids. Teach them the commands found in the Bible. Read and understand how men lived according to the governing statutes of God. The Proverbs are great for your family to review in daily devotion. Can I tell you something, moms and dads? A child knows nothing inherently. They learn it either through education, instruction, or experience. They are either taught it by word or taught it by deed. And it's your job to teach them. The devil has figured this out, by the way. So has the government. And yet so many parents turn to the almighty government instead of the almighty God to teach their kids. Christian parents, it's time we wake up to the fact that we have the responsibility to teach our kids our values, the lawless anarchists who are running our once godly nation must be challenged by a generation of kids who have been trained not in combat physically, but able to combat in truth and grace from God's word, the error that this world is living in. That's the principle of the matter. A child testifies of our principles of what we actually teach them, but also let her be of our practice. Ooh, it got worse. Immediately it got worse in here. How one Sunday, pick a Sunday and be happy with everybody. I am happy with that. I'm a generally happy guy. The word of God is generally positive. What I'm teaching to you is this. If you're doing something that is wrong, just stop. It really isn't that hard. A child testifies not only of our principles, but of our practices. We've all heard this phrase, do what I say, not what I Did it work on you when somebody said that? No, it never did. Let me also assure you here, we all make mistakes. 
Jessica and I are chief among them. We make mistakes. But when we make mistakes in front of our kids, we are not beyond the fact of going and asking forgiveness from our kids. If you have behaved in a way that is wrong towards them, just go and ask their forgiveness. Well, I shouldn't do that. I'm their dad. Listen, that's the best thing you can do for them as a dad when you've made a mistake is go and say, I did this wrong. Please forgive me. Paul writing on interpersonal relationships towards the end of the book of Ephesians. In chapter 5, he links the marriage union to Christ's union with the church. Then in chapter 6, he starts talking about a broader group than just husband and wife. And he starts the very next intimate relationship is children. All the kids in here can quote Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Right? We keep going and we're told to honor our parents. This is the first commandment with promise. And so every kid can quote that because we've been told that ad nauseum. Do you know what verse 4 says? Deuteronomy 6 taught us that we are to be sure our kids are testifying the right principles. Ephesians 6 says be sure that they're testifying of the right practices in your home. Because here's what it says in verse number 4. And ye fathers, that's you parents, you moms and dads, provoke not your children to wrath. Man, that word wrath is a tough word. It literally means flying blind rage. Wrath has a sense of a loss of control. There is a day coming where God will pour out his wrath upon the earth. He will not control or restrain his wrath anymore. He will just pour his wrath and fury out upon it. And that word wrath is the same word. Look, your children fly into blind rage. Why? Because you're not consistent in front of them. He says, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. To the Colossian believers, he wrote this in Colossians 3 and verse 21. Fathers, parents, provoke not your children to anger. Why? Lest they be discouraged. How many Christian kids have left Christianity because their parents have lived a duplicitous life? They say one thing. Pastor's here. Everybody clean up and shut up. Smile till he leaves. Can I tell you a secret? I don't think Jessica and I have ever done that, but we might have. Clean up and shut up until everybody leaves. Listen, living a duplicitous life, your kids see that. That's not who you want to be. That's not how you want to be. But often that's who we are. We have to be careful with our kids. Paul's point is through our actions and our selfish behavior, we can anger and enrage our children to the point that they become disillusioned and dismissive of us and ultimately our faith. You might say, well, pastor, it's my kid's fault. No, friend, it's your fault. If you've provoked them to wrath. The reason that we have so many kids leaving the Christian faith is because we have double-minded parents who want everyone to think we're heavenly on Sunday, but our homes are living hells Monday through Saturday. It's the truth. Inconsistency. You ever wonder why our kids have become overly sexualized in this country? It's because parents, Christian parents, gorge themselves on that kind of content. Wonder why the kids question their own identity? It's because as parents, we've not lived the biblical roles of a man and a woman before them and clearly explained from the Word of God what is right and wrong in those matters. It seemingly has come to a conclusion then, hasn't hasn't it? That sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, they won and Christianity seemingly has lost. At least in our culture, that's the case. A child is a treasure from God as a gift. 
Your child is a testimony of your principles and your practice in your home. Next, we find that a child is a tool. Now, some of you just said, yeah, my kid is a real tool. That's not what I'm talking about. All right. I'm talking about a weapon of warfare here. What does he call them? As arrows in the hand of a mighty man. The arrow was the tool of the mighty man's trade. His life depended upon being skilled with that weapon. Parents, do you view your children as tools given to you by God to be wielded for His glory and for good in both your life and theirs? We've seemingly lost the idea that we are responsible for our kids. Many times they are seen as nothing more in many homes, yet even in Christian homes, as a tax break and a time burden. That's how a lot of kids are viewed. May I remind you that you've been given these gifts, these tools, for just 18 years? And so the tool, letter A, is a tool of reality. Time is ticking. It never stops ticking. The mighty man would know if he hit his mark or not. In training, they would call out, hit, or they would call out, miss. In combat, he would see visually that his his army, his fellow soldiers, would gain the victory as footmen as he as an archer was firing his arrow. He would know the reality of success and failure. And as a tool, we can see the same thing in our kids. May I say to you, if there is a glaring mark in your child's life that you know must be dealt with, deal with it. Don't say, maybe they'll grow out of it. They won't. They'll grow into it. They will not grow out of it. They need you to intervene to help them. God has entrusted you to get your kids ready to go out into the world and be profitable, to be useful, to be helpful. Yet so many children leave Christian homes in a state of confusion, anger, and frustration. What they need from you is real answers to real-life problems. They don't need some other pithy quote from a meme you found on Facebook. They don't care. In fact, it is amazing to me the younger generation is increasingly leaving social media altogether. It seems that my generation and the one just above mine seems obsessed with it, and our kids could care less about it. It's amazing to me. What our homes need is scriptural grounding in the reality of what truth is. It is raising kids that we find it is in raising kids I should say that we find the true effort that must be given in our Christian life because they see everything. There's a lot of times with that tool we smash our own thumbs. I wish I hadn't said that in front of them. I wish I hadn't done that in front of them. Oh, I can't take it back. Listen, go and correct it very quickly. Become skilled in how you use that tool, that reward, that gift that God has given to you. I think a second reality of the arrow is that it must be shot with what? A a bow, right? Sometimes when I preach, you guys think, man, he's really deep. I am not deep at all. (laughs) You need a bow to shoot an arrow. Can can I tell you something? If you've ever looked at a longbow, and some of you guys are archers, you go out and you hunt and you you do all this stuff with these bows, I, I think I'd probably shoot the bow and it would go like that. But the mighty man would understand that there would be the front of it when the, with, with its standard or its hold, and then there would be tension drawn on that particular end of the bow. But there's not just those two points that are necessary. There's the top and the bottom that are absolutely necessary. As that flexion happens working together, it builds that tension so the arrow can be shot. 
And the two in this are the mom and the dad. Now, that is not to say that if you're a single parent home, you can't shoot an arrow rightly out into life. But the point that God is making by using the picture of a mighty man is that arrow being shot is going to need two, the holding and the pulling, two, the top and the bottom. It's going to need both on the same team to make sure that arrow gets its right direction. It's very important to understand in this tool. A child is a tool of reality, and the reality is they need you to engage in their life, and they will expose in you every weakness that is there. But it's for righteousness, let her be. Why are they given to us as a tool? So that we might live and act righteously in this present world. Oh, how glad the mighty man was when he hit his mark. They would say in the psalmist's day that his shot was true. That means his aim was right. His actions were right. Every process was good. Parents... 18 years is a marathon. It's not a sprint. But if you will be consistent to the Word of God, not perfect in the Word of God, but consistent to it, then you will find that the effort is worth it. Healthy relationship with your kids, your children, who are prepared for the devil's traps, the world's temptations, and their flesh's own tricks will be the reward you seek. The arrow striking its mark is evidence that the spiritually mighty father and mother wielded the weapon correctly that God gave to them. And it leads us, number four, that a child can be a triumph. They can be victorious. All is not hopeless in our modern world. Can I tell you, it's always been sinful, this world. It's always been dark. We see it more often today. It's more prevalent today. It's in our face today. But the world has always been wicked. What a psalm this is. It says in verse 5, Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. The they, I believe, at the end of verse 5, does refer to the children. The man himself who is trained, the woman herself who is trained, the mom and the dad who have trained their children, who have done done it the way that God has asked them to do it, will see success. They will be happy because of letter A, the fruitfulness of their efforts. Only God knows how full your actual quiver will be. Maybe it's one. Maybe it's ten. We had friends in Virginia... I don't know how many they had, maybe 9 or 10 kids or 11. And when the 11th or 12th one was, was on its way, my dad stopped him one time. They were deacons together, and he said, Gary, do you know how these things come? <laughs> <laughs> Gary knew, and he was very happy with all of his kids. And they have a full quiver if you talk to them today. Their children are out in ministry and serving. The point is, it doesn't matter how full or how many, just that you're satisfied with what God has given to you. Our boys are in the middle of being launched right now. Some of you have already launched your children out into this world, and others of you are anticipating that opportunity. Jessica and I are trying to pull together an intention and training of our boys to be launched out into great lives lived for their Savior so that they might hit their mark that God has for them. Hitting the mark for your kids, by the way, is not that they become pastors, nor is hitting the mark that they avoid becoming murderers. Right? Let's put the two extremes that people think of. 
Hitting the mark means that your child understands their place within God's plan, that they have a heart that loves God, a mind that is always thinking of God, and hands that are always seeking to serve God. I had a conversation this week with a godly young man in our church, and a portion of that conversation revolved around having ministry and what that looks like. There are some that I said are called to sacred ministry. Others, like his father, are called to secular ministry for Christ. But all of us have a responsibility to be ministers for Christ. That's the key. That's what a parent should be aiming for. It leads letter B to triumph of faith. This dad had taught his kids the truth of the word of God. He'd gotten into their life the principles and through a proper practice, but not perfect in it, but proper practice, he had been able to get that arrow, that child's life, shot off into success. And so the Bible says in verse number 5, They shall not be ashamed. Those kids will never be confused about who they are or what they are. They'll never have a problem with being successful. And they will be talking in the gates of the city. In other words, they'll be leaders in their own right. We often find that the first two verses of this psalm are skipped over. They should not be. I think the first two verses about God building a house and God keeping a city... And God giving us grace and peace, even in troublesome times, is due to the fact that we've trained children who've grown up and we can say, it is worth it all. Training a child in the faith that you have, being as consistent as you can, will produce children who can defend themselves and you in the gates of the city. That old proverb is a principle, yes, but it's a principle taken in faith. Proverbs 22 and verse 6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will what? That was pretty good. I know it's late in the service. Not depart from it. You believe that? Well, I know some that have been trained right and they left. That's right. It's a principle, not a promise. The principle is if you are consistent, that child is known by his own doings. The Proverbs also tell us that. He may go off and choose to depart from you and hate God from his own volitional will. Adam did that to God, his creator. But if you train them the right way, that which is true will always be a part of their heart. Even if they reject it, it will always be a part of them. It will be buried within them. In closing, all that we would, as a nation, awaken to the stupidity of our modern age. Children do not need to discover their gender. Their parents should tell them emphatically and clearly their born sex. Children do not have rights to be exerted against their parents save for the right to live free from harm and abuse. In other words, I always would say, if a child is being abused, they must and should say something. But the idea of exerting my will against my parents, can I tell you something that never worked for me with my dad? Because my dad lived by the principles and practice of the Word of God. And in my home, for my boys, it doesn't work for them. Parents should not live their lives shaped by their kids' ambitions. Rather, the children in our homes should learn that they are part of something greater than themselves. It's called our family. It's a good thing to be a part of. My father used to tell me all the time when I stepped on a soccer field because I was sometimes ruthless. I, was, I hated losing. He would say to me, remember, first you're a Christian and second you're a fanon. So don't play weak, but don't play wicked. <laughs> 
He would say it in different Ron Fannin terms, but that was the message I got. You're a Fannin. You're part of something bigger than yourself. We've lost that in this world. Their dreams, your kids' dreams and desires can become reality within the context of both maturity and work. So, this morning, are you willing to do the hard thing, parents? This is what I put as the challenge at the end of your notes. And that is raise your children as treasures from God as a gift, as testimonies of the principles and the practice that you have in your home in secret, as tools living within the reality of our age, but with the righteousness of Christ as our goal, and ultimately in triumph, that your children can defend themselves from the Word of God as they age and grow out of your home, and so that generationally, not just this church, but that the Christian faith The Word of God can stand in our culture and in our society. Like the man pulling the bow, it is not easy. But through strength and discipline, I promise you from the Word of God, you can hit the mark of raising a godly child. Father, help us, I pray, as we close. Gavin, I'm very glad for your faith in Jesus Christ and upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and now in obedience to the Great Commission, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with Him in the likeness of His death, raised in the likeness of His resurrection. Amen, brother. Well done. Watch your step. And Mason's coming. I, I, we were shocked at how old Gavin is. He's so tall. He's the same age as Drew. And that basketball on Friday night, Gavin was tearing it up. I'm glad Mason didn't come because he would have beat them all, I guess. So, Mason, we're glad for your salvation as well. He's telling me that it was at youth camp recently. And so we're glad for that. What a joy it is. So, Mason, upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in obedience to the Great Commission, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, buried with him in the likeness of his death. Raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Amen, brother. Praise the Lord. Well done. You can sing or pray, whatever you want, pal. Sing the chorus one more time, and then we'll pray and close this morning.